Invitations are really important in the life of the church. Chances are that there's a number of people in this room who are here today because someone invited you to come to church with them. Now, it may have been last week, it may have been weeks ago, years ago, maybe even decades ago that someone just simply said, would you like to come to church with me? And, you know, it could go back even further than that because it may be that the person who invited you was in turn invited by someone else. Again, weeks, months, years, decades before that. There's a chain that goes back for many of us of people who brought us into this. Now, that's important in inviting people to worship, to be initially part of the life of the church, but it works in ministry as well, that someone says to you, hey, would you like to help in VBS? Would you like help teach this class? Would you help prepare this meal? That we invite each other into ministry and the opportunity to minister together. Now, that really is a vital part of church life, and ministering is part, a vital part of church life. But here's the thing, sometimes it's easy for us to get discouraged. Now, I, I don't say what I'm about to say so that you'll encourage me, but here's the thing. If we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we get negative. And I've been with you for over nine years. And if you're here a lot of Sundays in a year, you may have heard something like 400 sermons from me. And it's easy to wonder, will one more really make that much difference, right? Dick Walmsley was here for 23 years before me. Some of you were here for a lot of that, and you heard maybe a thousand sermons from Dick. So between his thousand and my 400, does one more really count for that much? Well, we can do that to ourselves. We might say, well, does one more uh, small group lesson with our students or with our kids, is it really going to make that much difference? Is one more meal for a family who's having a funeral going to make that much difference? One more young at heart meal. One more communion meditation. One more whatever it is you do. Does it really matter that much? And today, I want us to think about that. Because you already know my answer is going to be, yes, it matters, but why? And to get at that, I'd like us to turn to Acts chapter 8. Now, if you read through all of Acts chapter 8, which we don't have time to do, what you'll find is that it's sort of a study in, in real contrast. And so let me encourage you to read all the way through Acts chapter 8 sometime today or this week and get the full story. But the basics are this. The, the church, the Christian movement, was originally a very Jewish movement, right? Jesus is a Jew. The disciples, all Jews. And so early on, this large number of people who come to Jesus at Pentecost, almost completely Jews. But in the book of Acts, Luke sort of predicts and shows that it's going to spread from Judea, where the Jews live, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Okay, that's sort of the outline of the book of Acts. Well, when we come to Acts chapter 8, it's still primarily in Judea. But it's time for that expansion to begin, to reach beyond just the Jews. So a man named Philip... Different from Philip the Apostle, this man we sometimes call Philip the Evangelist because that's what he was. He shared the message of Jesus. He goes from Judea to Samaria. Now you'll remember, Samaritans and Jews did not get along. They had religious and racial differences that kept them at arm's length all the time. Lots of strife between these two groups. But Philip, a Jew, went to Samaria and he began to preach. And when they begin to, hear, begin to hear the message of Jesus, these Samaritans responded. Now they had a basis in what we call the Old Testament. They thought a little different than the Jews, but still they saw that Jesus was the fulfillment of this and scores of Samaritans began to come 
to know Jesus because of Philip's work. This is an amazingly successful early work in the life of the church. There's a man there that has some problems with as a part of this because he sees Philip performing miracles and signs in the name of Jesus. He wants to buy the ability to do that, okay? So they have to straighten that out. Peter and John then come and they also preach. I mean, this is a hugely successful movement in the life of Christianity to move beyond the Jews to Samaritans. And then God acts in a way that my guess is surprised Philip. Because, man, the numbers were excellent. Numbers aren't everything, but the number of people who were coming to know Jesus in Samaria made this a very successful ministry. And then we read this, right in the middle of the chapter, Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So what's interesting about that? Well, if, if I'm Philip, and I'm in the middle of this hugely successful ministry, and things are awesome in Samaria, this is great ministry, and then the angel says, hey, I'd like for you to go to the desert road that runs down here and here. If I'm Philip, I say, well, hang on, why, why do I have to leave what's going so well I mean, don't you understand that this is a desert where they call it the desert for a reason, right? It's deserted. There's nobody there. Why should I go from this to that? But if Philip had those questions, they're not recorded. If I'm in Philip's shoes, I'm sure I would have had those questions. But, but we don't have any record of that. What we have a record of is Philip going, that he decided to go, and he encounters not crowds of people like Samaria, but one man. Verse 27. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Kandaki, that means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. So he goes from the big crowds to one guy. A guy from what they called Ethiopia, we call a different area Ethiopia. Now, this was really an area south of Egypt that we now call Sudan, okay? And, and this people of what they call Ethiopia were sort of a mythical group of people because there was very little contact between the eastern Mediterranean and this area. They had very dark skin compared to the people in Palestine. So they were seen as sort of mysterious and special. And these stories came back of all the things that happened in that area. But this one man is a powerful man. He's serving the queen mother who ruled traditionally Ethiopia. And he's in charge of the whole treasury. So he's in charge of all the money for the queen. And he's been in Jerusalem to worship. Now that strikes us as odd because this Ethiopian, not a Jew, in Jerusalem probably for a festival to worship probably from a class that they called the God-fearers, people who knew the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, the one true God, but were not ready to become Jews. And so, so this man probably worshipped God, but he's not becoming a Jew. And he's in Jerusalem for a festival, and he's on his way home, and he's reading from the book of Isaiah. Now, chances are, this man has bought a scroll while he's in Jerusalem. When we think of the Bible, we think, well, that's a, a book, looks like a book, any other book. But really, it's a, 
It's a library. It's a collection of books written over several centuries. And in the ancient world, they were still sort of separated out into individual books because scrolls were bulky. Scrolls were extremely expensive. The paper had to be made by hand. The, the ink had to be made by hand. It was copied by hand. So if you bought one book of the Bible, that meant you were wealthy. If you had several, that's pretty impressive. And the only place to really get these was in Palestine, especially in Jerusalem. So he's probably bought it, an Isaiah scroll, and he's taking it home. And on the way, he may have had a driver, he's reading. Reading from Isaiah, trying to understand it. And this is what happens. Verse 29, the Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Now, Luke wants us to know all the way through Acts, which we sometimes call the Acts of the Apostles, but could just as easily be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Luke tells us all the way through that one of the prime actors in this whole story is the Spirit of God. And here's an example again where the Spirit of God is directing everything that's going on. So he tells Philip, go up. Verse 29, go to that chariot and stay near it. And then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. Now, I don't know about you, but as a kid, when I heard this story, what I imagined was a chariot racing through the desert. Dust is flying. There's one or two horses that are pulling it, you know, from a movie. And Philip has to run along sprinting while he's trying to have this conversation. That's probably not accurate, okay? This word chariot could also be translated something as simple as ox cart, okay? So it very well may be that, you know, you can't run a horse at full speed all day. So it could be that it's a horse or an ox that's carrying this cart along, maybe a couple people. He may have a driver and while he's reading. And so Philip runs up to the chariot, but he may be at, at most jogging, but probably even just walking along, talking to the man. And he asks the right question. Do you understand what you're reading? Now, he's reading Isaiah. I mean, this is a big, expensive scroll. Isaiah has 66 chapters, one of the largest books in the Old Testament. So he spent a lot of money on this. He wants to understand. But if you've ever decided, you know what, I'm going to read one of the books of prophecy in the Old Testament, cover to cover, front to back, and if you choose Isaiah, my guess is that there are some places in Isaiah where you'll probably think, what is he talking about, right? Because it's not easy going. I mean, whether we read Old Testament prophecy or New Testament prophecy in Revelation, there are times we're a little confused. And so as we, we read through Isaiah, and he's not like he's got an NIV study Bible, right? He just got the text, no reference to when Isaiah lived, who he was talking to, who was king, none of that, just the text of Isaiah. Philip asked the right question. Do you understand what you're reading? And the man gives a really honest answer. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And then we're told that he is reading from Isaiah 53. He's reading from a passage that we sometimes call the, the, the songs of the suffering servant. And there are passages that many Christians read through and think, well, this is... This is talking about Jesus. 
Centuries before Jesus was born, these passages are pointing to the life of Jesus that He's going to suffer for His people. And more than that, He's going to, he's going to suffer silently. He's not going to respond to those who challenge Him. And when we read the story of Jesus' arrest, His trial, His crucifixion, and His resurrection, there are things in this prophecy that we read in Isaiah 53 and the chapters that surround it that I mean, it's clear this is, this is about Jesus. And so Philip has this opportunity. Do you understand what you're reading? No, how can I understand it unless somebody helps me out? And then we read what Philip, said, what Philip did. Verse 35, then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. So this suffering servant passage that points to Jesus, Philip used to say, okay, yeah, this is, this is all about Jesus. The prophet is pointing forward to who Jesus would be. And let me tell you the story of Jesus, who is God's son, who came and lived among us and, and performed incredible signs and wonders. And he taught and he went to the cross and he died there and he was raised from the dead. And undoubtedly, Philip also told him how you respond to that. He told him that we talked about this in a series not that long ago, that you respond in faith and repentance and confession and baptism. And we know that because in verse 38, they come to some water. And this is what we read. Well, the men said verse 36, rather. They traveled along the road and they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? Philip's covered that ground. And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. Now, when we talked about baptism a few weeks ago, one of the things that we said is that the word baptizo in Greek just means to immerse. Literally, that's what it meant. You would put something down into water. And this is one of those verses that helps us see a picture of that, because they both went down into the water. Now, if, if Philip was just going to pour water over the man's head or sprinkle it, they wouldn't need to be down in the water. But they went down in and literally he was immersed into Jesus. But then what? I mean, he's made the decision. He's committed himself. And here's all that we know of the rest of the story. Verse 39, when they came up out of the water, and again, it's clear they were in it, the Spirit of God suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again. They never crossed paths, but went on his way rejoicing. Remember that phrase. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Now, we don't know what happened to the Ethiopian man. We don't really hear from him again. But when I think about the way that Luke describes him, it is hard for me to believe that somehow this man, who is so interested in God's Word that he's spent a lot of money to take it home with him, and has found out that Jesus is the fulfillment of these things that were written centuries before by Isaiah, and has found out that this Jesus offers salvation not just to the Jews, but to all people, including Ethiopians, he makes a commitment to Jesus, and he goes home rejoicing. It's hard for me to imagine that this man stays quiet. 
Now, we're not told. But my guess is he didn't keep this to himself. So when we think, why would God possibly, why would he possibly take Philip from this highly successful ministry among the Samaritans that he had started and take him down to a desert road to speak to one man about Jesus. Why would God do that? I think there's two reasons. First of all, because every single human being is worth it. I mean, God loved you enough to send Jesus to die on a cross for your sins because he loves every single one of us. And it would have been worth it to take Philip and to put him in just the right place so that this man would know Jesus. But I think there's probably even more than that going on. I think what we're seeing is the message of the gospel spreading from the Jews in Judea and in, uh, Jerusalem to Samaria, to a group that's similar to them, but slightly different, to a group that is very different from them different religion, different skin color, different languages, and the man to do it is the man in the chariot reading the prophet Isaiah. And God put Philip in just the right spot for that, for the message to spread to an area that Philip couldn't even get to. And it just reminds us that sometimes when God puts us in a position to act, that God's call to ministry can reach further than we might imagine, further than we could expect. We might say, well, that just doesn't seem like a very big deal. It seems like there's more ministry impact over here. It seems like I could do more over here, but, but God keeps pulling me, pushing me, leading me in this direction. Maybe there's more potential there then you know. Maybe God is doing things that you don't know about right now. Why would God take you from something that's highly successful over here to something that is seemingly smaller, seemingly insignificant compared to? Because God's call to ministry can sometimes lead us in places we don't expect. And if we're going to be the kind of people who leave behind a legacy of faith, one of the things that we've got to do is, is to watch for opportunities for ministry and take them on and invite other people to go with us. You know, there may be times when, when you have an opportunity to do ministry and you go, I, I just don't know. I don't know, if, I don't know if I'm capable of that. I don't know if I have time for that. I don't know if it's really worth my time. We, we have to sometimes say, no, we can't do everything. That's okay. And when you sense God prompting you to do something, maybe seemingly insignificant, maybe really important, maybe a little beyond your comfort zone, maybe beyond what you think you can even do, it's a good idea to say yes. It's a good idea to say, okay, you know what? I'm going to take this on because God has called me to do it and he can do things with this that I might not expect. So whatever it is that God is calling you to do today, and I don't know what it is, why don't you say yes?
and see what God does with it. Let's pray together. God, give us the courage and the willingness to say yes when you call us to ministry. Sometimes we're hesitant. We want to judge the impact. We want to judge the resources that are needed. We want to judge whether we're going to be good at it. And you're just calling because you have all that in line. So God, help us to say yes. And then when we do, empower us, encourage us, Give us what we need to do it well, to do it for you, to do it for maximum impact. And God, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.